0: It's 2013 and Sasha de Julian is attempting a female first ascent in the Dolomite Mountains of Italy. She's making history, about a thousand foot off the ground.
1: We got to the, about like 200 feet from the actual summit. The end is in sight. And in every direction we looked, there was no protection.
0: No protection. That's climber speak for the fact that there was no place to secure herself to the rock face. She'd have to continue without ropes.
1: All of a sudden, my left hand and my left foot break off from the wall, and I feel like the gravity of these holes just like tumbling down beneath me into this dark wisp of air. And in that moment, I just wanted to cry.
0: I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How to Be Superhuman. In this episode, I speak to Sassy Julian, an athlete who's changing the face of climbing, not only for women, but for the community in general. At the age of 18, she won the World Indoor Championships, before switching focus to the phenomenon that is big wall climbing. It's a sport that gained a tonne of publicity after the film Free Solo won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2019. Sasha's mission is to complete as many female first ascents as possible. That means basically to become the first female in history to complete a certain route up a mountain. Something that she has achieved over 30 times already. In 2016, it was the big wall in Brazil. In 2017, Mora Mora in Madagascar. And last year, she set out on her most ambitious project yet. A three-pronged attack on the Rockies in Canada, known as the Canadian Trilogy. But whilst a lot of climbers and adventurers come from places like the west coast of America, where the great outdoors is part of their everyday life, Sasha's from Washington DC. Not exactly a hotspot for extreme
1: climbing. My parents didn't really know anything about climbing except that I lucked out with some of the kids that I grew up climbing with. And also my coach was this Romanian guy that I started working with when I was about eight years old. And he went on to be the head US team coach And I started climbing outside with, like, those friends on weekends, occasionally when I wasn't competing. Then by the time I started climbing internationally and going to competitions in, like, France and Spain and Austria, uh, those friends that I had from the different nations became my climbing buddies as well to, like, go to places to climb outside when there wasn't a competition. And that was kind of how I started dabbling in the realm of outdoor climbing. But my mom now, my dad passed away a few years ago, but my mom actually would come and belay me. Like she learned how to belay mm-hmm. and that's basically hold the end of the rope. And so some of my trips, I've actually brought her along just so she can enjoy where I'm at. barring the obvious, Talk us through like the major differences
0: between indoor and outdoor climbing.
1: Yeah, indoor climbing is really different because um indoor climbing is on an artificial setting and that's typically inside or in a climbing arena and climbing inside is basically the set of different climbing holds that are plastic and they're set on the wall by a specific root setter. And so a root setter is someone who has an accreditation to set a route. And and similar to outdoor climbing, like indoor climbing goes on a grade scale of difficulty from 5.4 to 5.15, or in the Yosemite decimal system, that's how it works. In Europe, there's a grade system that basically goes from like 5A to numerically 9C. And as you go up that grade scale, the climbs become increasingly difficult. So that could be anything from the angle of the wall to the holds that are associated with the movement. And you really need to think about solving this jigsaw of puzzle pieces into one entire piece in order to not fall and make it to the top of the wall. And then outdoor climbing is pretty similar, but it's on natural rock. So the roots are set by nature, and you basically have these big cliff faces, and you're looking at the different little crevices in the rock or protruding features in order to have something to grab onto with your fingertips and your toes. I wear my climbing shoes, like two sizes smaller than my normal street shoes, and that's because you have hypersensitivity in the edge of your toes that you're using to really place your foot onto these microscopic edges as you free climb your way up cliff faces.
0: Because I've always seen some of these crazy climbing videos and some of these rock faces like stuff, sort of, they, well, they're just staggering. And I've always wondered like how often you just go up a rock face, seeing it, you know, like, you know, doing it on site and then getting to a point where you just go, right, well, that's it, you know, and, and you just can't go any further. Yeah, what yeah, what, what yeah, do yeah. you do then?
1: Well, so on-site climbing is a big part of climbing and also especially in exploration climbing like if you're doing the first ascent of a cliff face, sometimes you don't actually know if it is humanly possible and you're just going up the wall to find out what you're capable of. And i definitely know that like some climbs may go and some climbs don't go. Like if you're climbing something and there's literally nothing to hold on to and the wall is as blank as a cement wall, then it can be humanly pretty challenging to actually scale, unless you're like Spider-Man with (laughs) extendable grips. But then a lot of climbing is failure. You could fall a lot on the same moves that are actually, they turn out to be possible. It's just you have to figure out, fine-tune your beta, which is basically your way to solve the sequence up the wall, and adjust these micro movements like moving your hips a little bit to the left and weighting your foot a little bit more in a certain angle. And that could be the difference of getting through a certain part of a climb or not.
0: But so much of this is like feel and experience. But, you know, when you start off, you've got none of this. So, like, what was the first big wall that you completed and how did you go about that?
1: I guess when I was about eight, I was climbing outside, not routinely at all. About 16 or so, I started climbing outside more, all by I was still competing. and And by the time I was 20, I was focused more on outdoor climbing than I was on indoor climbing. And my first times are a little blurry because it was just kind of like sporadic that led into this addiction, and now it's just like what I do. But I've definitely had some epics where like my first big wall experience, I got totally benighted at the top of the wall and my climbing partner and I had to spend the night in like this shiver bivvy until (laughs) the sun rose again and we could make our way down. So there have been epics like that where sometimes you get stuck on the wall and you have to wait for daylight because climbing through the night can be challenging as well.
0: Talk us through some of your big falls and, like, you know, what what goes through your mind.
1: Yeah, I've definitely, like, had some climbing moments where I feel totally terrified. Even though I've been climbing for over 20 years, I don't think that fear ever fully goes away. Like, it could even be irrational fear where I'm climbing... When I do fall, the fall is totally fine, but I'm climbing over my last piece of protection. And so the rope is below me. I've got a lot of slack out, and I'm kind of like envisioning where my body's gonna go if my hand slips. And normally it's in those moments when I'm just like fixated on what happens if I fall that I actually do fall. Because what I found happens is. I'm at my best when I'm climbing and I'm not thinking about the consequences of if something goes wrong. And if I am climbing and carrying that negative weight of kind of like predicting how my body's going to maybe like smash into the rock below me, then that's when like the fear kind of mounts up and becomes more than it might actually be. Can you talk
0: us through like, you know, Moment by moment, that, that fall that broke your back.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was actually just messing around with some friends when I was bouldering. And bouldering is like these walls that are no taller than about 15 feet. I didn't have a crash pad. And normally you do have a crash pad placed below you because if you fall, you fall into this soft padding. But I missed the pad because I wasn't really anticipating to be on any sort of terrain that I would fall on. It was just kind of warming up and the rock broke that I was holding onto and I fell pretty unexpectedly directly onto my back and, like, my back landed on this sharp edge of a rock that was on the ground. And I felt like I was, like, maybe paralyzed at first, like, not not to be dramatic or anything, but, like, I couldn't feel my legs, which was kind of scary And I ended up being fine. It was just like a bit of a road to recovery for about two months. It it hurt to like even put on my pants (laughs) and like do anything. I guess my body healed and I did PT and, and everything's fine since then.
0: But she was soon to discover how real things could get outside of the safety of the bouldering gym. At the beginning of her big war career, Sasha and her climbing partner headed to the Dolomites. She had a sight set on a female first ascent of Camelotto Pelicier, a route up the mountain Chime Grande.
1: We had started from the bottom at a reasonable hour, maybe not early enough. Climbers like
0: Sasha swear by what is known as an alpine start. Setting off at the crack of dawn where conditions are believed to be much more stable.
1: We made it through the beginning hardest section of the climb and then we were about over a thousand vertical feet.
0: It wasn't the time to be complacent. They could nearly touch the summit and history was in sight.
1: We had gotten off route so we are looking around for where we could actually go to finish and get to the top.
0: Although on paper, or rock, should I say, the terrain was technically simple, but there just didn't appear to be any places for Sasha to attach her rope.
1: We basically had the rope with us, but nowhere to put the rope as like any sort of protection point so that we could stay safely secured by it.
0: That meant only one thing.
1: Climbing unprotected over a thousand vertical feet up on a climb was pretty terrifying because what we ended up having to do was untie from the rope and put it on our packs and just continue free soloing to get to the top.
0: Free soloing. The art of climbing without ropes or protection. Failure results in near-certain death, and any wrong move could be Sasha's last.
1: So we're climbing up this last, like, kind of easier terrain, and all of a sudden my left hand and my left foot break off from the wall, and I feel, like, the gravity of these holes just, like, tumbling down beneath me into this, like, dark wisp of air.
0: The rock or, or hole Sasha had been clinging onto had given way. And now she's looking down, thinking I was inches, centimeters away from death.
1: It was pretty terrifying, but also memorable, because I realized there was just no one that I even could complain to, and and I, I think in that moment, like I was young and and relatively inexperienced and like I just wanted to cry, frankly. Like I was like <laughs> so nervous and like so certain that I was just gonna like die there. Um, But I realized that the only way to really be in control was to control my breathing and to control my thoughts and just to be fully present with where I was at at the wall and get to the top and focus on what I could control.
0: You, you are able to control these situations. That of course you've, you know, achieved many highs. You know, the big wall in Brazil, the Misty Wall in Yosemite, and of course in 2017, you know, the first female free ascent of mora Mora. So, like, you're blazing a trail not just for female climbers, but climbers in general. How proud and how important do you think that is to to be a female? You know, pushing all these boundaries.
1: Thank you. No, I appreciate that. And and I think that now, like, there are so many strong climbers, and I'm inspired by so many of my peers. And what I can do is, is basically try and climb as as many cool climbs as I'm inspired to. And And I think that for me, when I see other women really doing amazing things, I feel even more inspired than other men because frankly, when I see another woman do something, I think, oh, wow, if she can do it, I can do it, too. And I I think that there's a really powerful force there. And, And I also think it's really important for young girls to grow up with strong female role models that are of a wide variety of different expertise, because the world is so multifaceted and And whatever it is that you're passionate about, I think it's just really important to follow that. And so as far as, like, women doing things cool and and where I see, like, female first ascents, I mean, they're historic to note because they're achievements within our sport that have never been done by a specific gender group before. But I also think that climbing is a really cool sport in the way that women can achieve things that are equally as impressive as if a male achieved them. And, and I think that like focusing on doing really just like, irregardless of gender, rad mountains and accomplishing new terrain is something that inspires me.
0: And in 2019, she definitely felt inspired. Inspired to take on what is known as the Canadian Trilogy. Consisting of three big walls in the Rockies, Sasha would attempt to complete them one after the other, in a feat not just of immense skill, but incredible endurance.
1: I drove up from Boulder, Colorado, up to Canmore area, and it was about 20-hour drive, and, and I just kind of dove into this project, which turned out to be a really awesome community experience because I got to know a lot of people up in the, the little mountain town and, and really experience the outdoors in such an intimate way. Like, when you're out on a climb or hiking out to a climb, you're spending these long hours and days just out in nature, like, not thinking of much else and just, like, really physically pushing yourself to your limits. And that's what I love about climbing trips in general. Like when I'm in the gym and just kind of grinding it out and doing my training so that I can go off onto a trip and be as prepared as possible, there's a, a part of that process that I really appreciate because it's a little more scientific and and you're in the comfort of your own home. But at the same time, there's nothing that I prefer than when you're just fully out there on an expedition or a climbing trip and you're just like really involved in it and spending time with good friends outside.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the friends and the community because, you know, everybody thinks about climbing as a solo sport. In fact, obviously we use the word solo all the time, but this plan didn't go to plan because you did it without a partner.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was unintentional. I was going up to do these climbs, and my climbing partner actually failed out in the last, like, week within the trip. So I ended up going up on the trip alone, and and I ended up being really grateful for that experience because I got to know a lot of people and go climbing with a lot of people that I probably would have otherwise never met. And I think that there's something to be said about the partnership that goes into climbing. Like, it is an individual sport, but at the same time, you're climbing these big objectives with a climbing partner, and that relationship that you have is so intimate because you're literally putting yourselves into each other's hands, and and your life depends on it. And you're also spending, like, long hours together trying to solve something, trying to find out if you're capable. So it's a pretty vulnerable and fully present way to spend time with someone. To be honest, I don't blame your partner for
0: dropping out because I've seen the names of some of these climbs. Climbing names are brilliant. So the first route, yeah. Castle Mountain, but the route's called Warhammer. As soon as I had read that, I'd have just gone, yeah, sorry, sorry, Sasha, I'm not coming with you. So tell us about this first climb, Warhammer.
1: Yeah, it, it climbed this like striking arrêt that was pretty amazing. And, and you're climbing above tree line and when you look down it was just like this very exposed feeling of just like being totally up there kind of at nature's mercy and and on that climb in particular it was very windy because um there was no sort of protection it was pretty exposed and it happened to be experiencing like quite windy days in the alpine conditions but i actually surprised myself in doing that climb as quickly as I did because I had originally planned that each of these climbs would take about three weeks to crack and I wanted to do each of them in a single-day push. And I did that first climb by the end of my first week being up there and kind of just like dove straight into the second climb of the trilogy.
0: The second climb was the equally terrifyingly named The Shining. And Sasha hoped it wasn't going to become a horror movie.
1: When you drive along the highway and you see this climb, which you can actually see when you're driving, in the morning, the entire face of the mountain is lit up and it's like has this particular iridescent shine to it
0: i've seen i've seen you climbing on this and to be honest it just looks like a glass window that you're climbing on i just couldn't believe that you're on it without suckers on your hands but like when you're on (laughs) these mountains and you talk to us about some of the challenges you overcome you've already mentioned the wind how do you deal with them
1: i think that the challenges actually end up more within the movement when you're climbing something that's challenging the hardest part is really figuring out like how to have enough strength in my fingertips to really hold on to these little tiny edges that I need to put my entire body weight onto and, like, be pulling up off of. And, and a lot of that comes down to, like, fine-tuning particular body movement and really being in control of my mind as I solve these sequences. I think that for the practical levels of fear that I experienced when I'm climbing them, it's a little bit more, um, it's almost like a little bit more manageable than the physical side of like actually being able to do something. But when it comes to like fear of wind and, and exposure and being thousands of feet up, um, I, I think that there's almost two categories. Like You just don't think about it. Or sometimes when I'm really scared to fall, like I'll just let go and take the fall and find out for myself that it's okay. And sometimes that's like the best case scenario because once you experience something and you break this like unknown barrier of not knowing what it'll feel like, then you can continue on and know what that experience is like because you've tried it.
0: that's what she found climbing the second climb of the trilogy she was up there on the rock doing something she'd never done before and suddenly
1: there was just something that clicked and it was this flow state of my body was just operating and and when I'm in this state and really climbing my best I feel like I'm so in tune with everything that I feel but at the same time not telling my body to do anything I just I'm just there like I can feel the rock underneath my fingertips and the grittiness of it is advantageous because it's like I can feel the grains in the rock and that's my connection that I have to it and I think that when I don't have that feeling is when I'm not climbing as well or too hyper conscious of everything else and I can just like kind of let go and let my body take over to what. I just subconsciously know how to do, then that's like my favorite state of climbing.
0: That's incredible. Two two down, one to go. The third, the third in the trilogy, and and your inspiration maybe for the climb, set the scene for us.
1: Yeah, my by the time of the third climb in the trilogy. I think I I honestly was pretty exhausted but also so motivated by the fact that this dream was starting to become realistic. And by the time I made it to Mount Yamnuska, which was the third climb, the wildfires were getting really bad and and this climb was actually opposite from the other two which were rather cold conditions and more alpine this climb was pretty exposed to the heat. And something that I needed to start working on was this really bouldery crux that was on the crux pitch. And it was kind of ironic because I had done like thousands of vertical feet of climbing up to that point. But then there was this like 10 foot stretch of rock face that I just couldn't figure out how to put the pieces together. And so by the time the day that I actually sent came, it was that similar feeling of just being totally in tune with like my finger bleeding and just like loving that, not in like, I mean, I guess in a masochistic way, but like (laughs) really appreciating that because the fact that my fingers were bleeding and I was just trying so hard meant that I was connected to the rock in this way that I was hanging on and like if my fingers weren't bleeding, like I wouldn't be climbing, you know? and so really like being present and there and and feeling like wow this is my day like I'm gonna do it uh it was this surge of confidence that was pretty awesome and and I actually had a couple friends who came up to watch and and standing on top of Mount Yamnuska having completed the trilogy was a pretty surreal feeling because I was like I can't believe this is done like I feel like I'm gonna wake up tomorrow morning, and this will all be a dream, and like, (laughs) I'll still have to climb these. And so, actually, letting that that feeling of accomplishment sink in sometimes takes me like a couple months for it to settle, and for me to really like feel that weight of like happiness. (laughs)
0: What, what did it look like from the top of the excellently named Blue Jeans Direct? Could you see the other climbs? Like, just talk us through the panorama.
1: The view is actually really foggy because of all of the, the smoke in the air. So the panorama is like just like big white air, honestly. And hopefully we'll see Sasha back climbing in either cloudy
0: or clear skies again very soon. I highly recommend you go and check out Sasha's climbing show on Red Bull TV, called 10 AM on a Tuesday. A real insight into her incredible lifestyle. On next week's episode, and in fact, the final installment in this series of how to be superhuman, we'll be chatting to Karen Dark, Paralympic hero and adventurer. Once we got more than 20 meters off the ground, I realized how petrified I was of heights. It wasn't going to work if I freaked out and I very quickly knew that I had to control my fear rather than let it control me. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull How to Be Superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats. Or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How To Be Superhuman is a Something Else production for Red Bull Media House.